Let's open the Word of God, please, to Matthew 28. The very last two verses of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. And we're going to talk about the purpose, objectives, and goals, but in a way that for visitors I think will be helpful and interesting. But it's just kind of a reminder of what we're trying to do, what the target is around here. I love this picture. of uh, That was uh, some of the ones that went on the uh, Puebla 2015 trip. Tomas, of course, on the left, El Jefe. Ray, Gary, Claudia, Claudia and Gary's bigger brother, and Henry. And um, I just love the way they're overlooking the city and we get that picture. But yeah, let's talk about the purpose, objectives, and goals. I'm going to call that the POGS today. That's my acronym for purpose, objectives, and goals. And I would say, Natalie, that our secret mission is found on the front page of the bulletin every Sunday. And so you can read that, but if I wanted to translate the, the mission statement into make a little bit more personal form, maybe, I would say that, because people will ask you if you're associated with a church like this, if you're Methodist, Lutheran, Presbyterian, they kind of know what that is, or they think they know. But somebody sooner or later will say, what is, what's Tanglewood Bible Fellowship? And the way I try to explain that is, a TBF is a group of Christian believers from a wide variety of denominational backgrounds, united by our faith in Jesus Christ and a desire to grow and to reproduce spiritually, especially by a focus on the basics, and we get the basics from the very first church the apostles started, of Bible study, fellowship, worship, prayer, and evangelism slash world missions. At the very core of TBF, at the very core of every legitimate Christian church, regardless of domination, color, country, or culture, is the gospel message that Christ died for our sins and rose again. Because Christ died for our sins. We don't have to die in our sins. Uh, but he's not dead anymore. He was resurrected, literally, supernaturally, bodily. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that's the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and he was buried and he rose again on the third day, according to scriptures, and he was seen. And so that's what really holds us together, the, the truth of the gospel, the, the Savior, our best friend, our God, our Lord Jesus Christ. And if I wanted to summarize not just who we are, but kind of our philosophy, and I've been here for 29 years now, I would say, from my pers- perspective, TBF is not about getting people to become more active doing religious activities, even though we have a lot of stuff to do around here. TBF is about the power of Christ becoming more active in believers because you live your Christian life, 99% of it, out in the real world, not in the church building. So as is our custom, let's pray for us to be teachable to God's truth this morning and that it's the teaching, not the teacher, that's really the issue here. Um, and also let's pray for our um, active military. These are people we all know or know about personally and our... Uh, peace officers, male and female, and our firefighters. And uh, Doug, if you would, pray for us this morning, okay? You know what? Um, I forgot to show that picture Wednesday night. That's uh, Michael, who is uh, Bonnie Foreman's cousin, a young boy in a car accident, and they actually had to put his skull back together. And as we pray for him, I think seeing that, that picture will help us to remember to pray for him regularly. Uh, our concept of ministry, and, and a lot of preachers won't tell you this because they might get fired. Their board might fire them if they said this, even though all the good guys understand this. 
this church is a good church, uh, but it's not the only good church in our area, in our town. There are a lot of good churches in Duncan and Stevens County and Oklahoma. However, I would say TPF is a church with a 40-plus year track record um, of consistent and I think significant biblical ministry to the glory of God. And I say that because it's true and I love to say it and also to set up this tongue-in-cheek attempt to warm up your capacity for abstract thinking. Top five things that make TBF especially special. Number five, if you attend Sunday services two times in a row, and let me just tell you, after 29 years, I've been intimately studying the attendance patterns of all of you people, and the only pattern is there is no pattern. <laughs> okay, I, I can't figure it out, so I stopped trying. But, and so for some people, you know, coming, uh, oops, I'm not sure what I did there. We'll start over. Coming two weeks in a row is a challenge. But if you attend Sunday services two times in a row for the whole next year, you can get 2% off any order of 500 or more t-shirts from Red Dirt Apparel. <laughs> so that's an incentive right there for you. Our pastor is the real McCoy. Our youth pastor is the real Mitchell. Mitchell, James Mitchell. We don't have rock concerts, exciting lighting effects, dancing elephants, or an overpowering pastoral presence any Sunday. But we do have free coffee, free donuts, and free parking every Sunday. And finally, my friends, we're not Baptist, Assembly of God, Methodist, or Presbyterian. But we are the next best thing. So that's my position, and I am proud of it. Uh, let's talk about the POGs, our purpose. We've got one purpose, overarching. Uh, two basic objectives and, and five goals, or really five functions. And we get those from Matthew, Ephesians, and Acts. In uh, Matthew, you're looking at that. The resurrected Christ tells the apostles, who are the foundation of the church, Christ himself being the cornerstone, uh, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Uh, Jesus wasn't a Republican. He wasn't uh, an American. And uh, America isn't necessarily the heart of uh, the entire plan of God. It's much bigger than that. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them that respond to the going with the gospel in the name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit. There's the Trinity for you teaching baptized believers who've identified with the Christian church, teaching them, and we do a lot of teaching around here, to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, uh, I'm big into acronyms now that I'm, uh, I guess, after 14 years of being a speech teacher, I guess I'm a speech teacher as well as a professional Christian, but uh, I look at that and I see M-E-A, and that's just crying out for another letter, so I... Really, I think it's M-E-A-T, because we're, we're, we're teaching, um, that should say meat, not just milk. That's a, called a typographical error, and I'm an expert on that. But let's, let's unpack the uh, purpose, objectives, and goals. When you look at, and I can remember growing up in a Baptist church and hearing Matthew 28, 19, and 20 talked about all the time, and, and you read it in English, and you're going, and you're baptizing, and you're, you're teaching, and and it sounds like you're doing a lot of stuff, but really when you analyze it in the original, there's only one verb, there's, there's an imperative, a command, one finite verb in this sentence, 
with three participles. The command is make disciples. And a disciple is a believer who's taking up his or her cross daily and following Christ. You're not being crucified for Christ. You're taking up your cross. When people, when Romans would condemn rebels against Roman authority and consign them to crucifixion, they forced the convicted rebel to publicly submit to the Roman authority they had previously rebelled against by carrying the implement of that torture, the cross, to the place of execution. Carrying a cross for Christ isn't doing something to save yourself or stay saved. It's publicly submitting to the authority of Christ because before you were a believer, you were oblivious to that. Okay, So a disciple is a believer who is walking with the Lord. And then you've got three participles of means that tell you how you do that. First, you go with the gospel, the message that salvation is something God does has done for you in Christ, and you can receive it through faith. What must I do to be saved? Paul was asked. What did he say? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, is what he said. So go with the gospel so people can hear, and no matter how religious they are, they can give up hoping to save themselves and trust Christ to save them. No matter how wicked they've been, they can stop ignoring that and rationalizing that and redefining that and renounce it and trust Christ to save them. So go with the gospel. Take people who believe the gospel and receive Christ. Have them publicly identify with Christ by water baptism. Water baptism is like a wedding ring. I can take this off to play basketball and I'm still married, and if somebody else picked it up and put it on, they wouldn't be married to me or Debbie, right? Uh, unless you're in Arkansas, and they have different rules there. But uh, So you baptize, I wear a ring just as a public uh, statement, as a symbol, and water baptism is a symbol of being identified with Christ. You dare to believe he died for your sins, was buried, and rose again. And then teaching believers, and that's an ongoing thing. That gives me and James job security. So that's our overall purpose. Somebody says, what's the purpose of Tanguid Bible Fellowship? And it is really the purpose of all the good local churches in town is to make disciples of Jesus. Notice I emphasize that. There was a fad 30 years ago that all of us were supposed to have our own spiritual science projects, and I was supposed to be making disciples of Brad, and James was supposed to be making disciples of, of James, and Dale was supposed to have some guy he met with to make a disciple of Dale. That's not the deal. You're not supposed to be making disciples of yourself. We're supposed to be and have an influence on others to become more like a true disciple of Jesus Christ, who's the Savior, the Lord, best friend, God, creator, consummator. Now, under that purpose, and that's kind of like an umbrella, we have two basic objectives. And I get that from Ephesians 4. And for lack of time, although Dale read it very nicely, called a worship, basically Ephesians 4 talks about the dynamics of the church. And it says, hey, God doesn't call the world to come to church. Cause the church to go into the world. But when the church is gathered, we all use our gifts. So we're built up in the faith. So Peg's kind of, uh, encouraged and, and edified and, uh, better, uh, abled, able to, uh, live her Christian life in the real world. Uh, so that the believers come to the church for edification. We go out into the world as salt and light spiritually and we evangelize. And as Carla reminds me, you, you use words when necessary. But a lot of times it's just the way you live your life. I teach world religion at Cameron University, and uh, they were kind of freaking out about having an evangelical Christian teach uh, world religions at Cameron University. 
until I, and I said, hey, you know what? I, I realize the difference between a church and a classroom, and I'm not going to proselytize in the classroom, but I define kind of who I am at the first day, and then we see what happens. And, and over the years, I've had a lot of people come to me outside of class, and we've had some significant interaction. But uh, uh, I'm a Christian not just on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights because you pay me to be here. I'm a Christian 24-7. And I actually went to church before they paid me to come to church. So uh, it's, a, it's a real deal. So uh, our objectives are to be edified as we interact together so we can actually make an impact in our world evangelistically. And then our five basic goals or functions, and please turn to Acts 2, 2.42, chapter 2, verse 42. I love this. This is uh, just a, a few, multiple weeks after the resurrection. We're still in Jerusalem. We've got the 12 apostles. I know Judas wasn't really a true apostle, but Matthias was added to the band in Acts 1. and Acts 2, Peter has preached a message. 3,000 people come to faith. So watch this. Clay, you got 3,000 brand new believers just a few weeks after the resurrection, led in, in the first church ever, uh, and the apostles are the staff, and what do they do with them? And I don't know if they had a coffee pot or a fellowship hall, I doubt it, or a softball team, but here's what I know they did. This is what the apostles with the Great Commission still ringing in their ear made sure happened in the very first church and all the churches thereafter. Acts 2.42, they were continually devoting themselves to, number one, the apostles' teaching. That's Bible study. They're teaching it themselves. Uh, to fellowship. Fellowship is interaction between believers that's mutually edifying. Okay, The breaking of bread. The breaking of bread, not just breaking of bread, sharing meals, but the breaking of bread is the Lord's Supper, highest form of New Testament worship, and a prayer. And as a good Southern Baptist, my background, the first thing I'm thinking about, where's the evangelism? I mean, we always stressed evangelism, and I'm all for it, by the way. Drop down to verse 47. Evangelism, as it turns out, is an important function slash world missions, WM, of the Christian church, including local churches. But in a way, it's kind of an effect of growing faith. It's an effect of having a credible, consistent Christian life in the real world, because look what happens. Rather than begging people to come to the church, although it's great to have unbelievers visit church, you're welcome to come. That's not the primary way the apostles did church. They focused on believers getting together for teaching, fellowship, worship, prayer. Verse 47, these folks that are in that environment, these Christians are in that environment, are living a life, praising God, having favor with people because they show up on time for work, they don't cuss, they don't mess around and cheat on their wives, uh, they are uh, shop on time, work hard, pay their taxes, obey the laws, having favor with all the people, and as a result of these people living credible, consistent Christian lives, the Lord was adding to their number day by day. Those were being saved because the guy going to the blacksmith was talking to a Christian. The guy going to the shopkeeper was talking to a Christian. The young mom talking to her neighbor talking to a Christian. They saw they were different. They saw they had something they wanted and people were coming to faith not because they were coming to hear Peter, James, and John on Sunday so much, but because they were seeing the average Christian live out the faith uh, in the real world. Now, uh, question: uh, Can you tell the difference? I'm going to. This is going to be a test for everybody. And I know Jack Smith's a deep thinker, so it's going to be easy for him. But I want you to see if you can tell the difference between a schematic diagram by a non-graphic designer. 
that puts all this in a visual form as opposed to a wonderful graphic done by a graphic designer. So here, tell me if you can tell which one's by the amateur, which is on the professional. There's one. There's another one. Let's see if you, let me do that slowly. There's one. If you're listening on the internet, you can't enjoy this. Yeah, uh, Anthony, my main man, foreman, uh, cleaned up my diagram here. And uh, the idea is we've got the overall umbrella. Our purpose is to make disciples, glorify God by making disciples. Our two objectives is when the church is gathered, let's edify one another, especially by focusing on Bible study, fellowship, worship, and prayer, so that when we go out in the real world, we can be involved in lifestyle evangelism on Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays and even on prom night for crying out loud. And then let's think of ourselves as a spiritual greenhouse where we're catalyzing spiritual growth and reproduction. So those are our pogs. And typically in this message, I spend 45 minutes on that. But I want to go in some other directions today. Let's go from uh, the purpose, objectives, and goals to our basic concept of ministry. The fancy term for this is philosophy ministry. You've seen this before. You know, I see us as a spiritual battleship, not as a spiritual uh, religious cruise ship. And I know some people think the pastor is just kind of the cruise director on the good ship Lollipop. And I don't see that in the New Testament. You know, I'm sorry. Um, and I, I like the love boat. I just, those, those were the good old days, you know, in television. But uh, And by that, that skipper, by the way, was a Christian, uh, Gavin McLeod. I always loved his hairdo, but that's just a different thing. Uh, yeah, uh, the New Testament church, and I see this church, and James sees this church more as a spiritual battleship than a spiritual cruise ship, as a spiritual health food establishment as opposed to a, a religious fast food joint. Now, if I wanted to be nasty, I could say junk food, but I'm not going to do that. And uh, more of a spiritual Simmons Center than a museum of perfect people. And, and again, I typically will spend 15 minutes developing that. Let's just focus on the one, the uh, spiritual battleship. And some of you will remember the first time we ever saw this list, Curtis Hale from uh, GMF E3 Ministries was here, and he went over this. I'd never seen that analogy before, and I, I'm not sure he developed it. He probably got it from Howard Hendricks or something. Most of the really good ideas from us Dallas Seminary people usually go back to Howard Hendricks or Zane Hodges or something like that. But on a cruise ship, you're on vacation, right? When you're on a battleship, you're on a mission. My dad served on a battleship, USS Wisconsin, World War II. Uh, cruise ship, you're on a holiday. Battleship, it's a lifestyle. You're trying to survive kamikaze attacks and whatnot. Cruise ship's all about pleasure and fun. Battleship involves hard work. Cruise ship is voluntary. You're there because you want to be. Uh, battleship, you're under authority, right? Uh, cruise ship is nothing but fun, fun, fun. And, you know, hey, we have a lot of fun around here, right? So it's not against the rules to have fun, but that's not the main point. Battleship involves sacrifice and dedication. Cruise ship is temporary. You're only on it for about a week or so. A battleship, you're serving the 24-7 the entire time of your enlistment. Uh, cruise ship's easy. Battleship's challenging. Cruise ship, you got no tasks. you got a thousand people waiting on you hand and foot. Battleship, you've got a definite role and responsibilities. Passive observer, active contributor. It's, cruise ship's all about being served by others, which is why people love cruises so much, and I get that. I've been on a couple myself. 
uh, whereas on a battleship, you're serving alongside with others and you're dealing with a big, massive issue, like a war kind of thing. And I think what our Savior says, you know, he says, uh, you guys are arguing, the apostles are arguing about which one of them was the best, the most spiritual, going to get the most stuff at the end. And Jesus says, don't think like that. Just be a servant. The Son of Man did not come, he's talking about himself, uh, to be served. He came, what? To serve and go to the cross. So that's that's our role model, right? Now let me ask you about this. Uh, I talked... I sent an email that was trying to be a little scary. I said there'd be some shocking stuff today. And here's the shocking part. Uh, it's, it, you probably can't see it in the graphic. And I think, didn't you have a communication professor, Dustin, who said, don't use a visual aid where you have to say, you probably can't see this on my visual aid, but, but, um, yeah, in the lower left corner of this, uh, situation, I'm going to ask you what it is in a minute. The sign says Sunday services ten o'clock, and guess what? There ain't going to be any Sunday services at that church because it's being it's going down. That church is being destroyed. You're looking at a picture of a church being destroyed, and we could destroy this thing. I, I could destroy this thing pretty quickly. Um, and I was going to just say three good ways to destroy a local church, but that's too impersonal. I wanted to make it personal. I don't think it's going to happen, but it could happen. And these are some of the trends in evangelicalism in the United States. You don't have to go to Haiti in voodoo time to get this kind of stuff. Human personality, if that's being emphasized over propositional truth, we're going to have a problem. We're going to wreck this thing. If we embrace a business model, I, I hate to tell you this, this this young, restless, and reformed, these people are being trained to think of themselves as a CEO. Pastor, a CEO? As opposed to shepherd, I don't, I don't see that, man. And I've translated most of the Bible in original languages. I can't find it. Uh, cultural, cultural pragmatism. What does that mean? We want to be cool. What? We want to be the cool church in town. Uh, don't think that's going to work. Let's look at the first one. Human personality over propositional truth. I'm going to read something to you. I know it's boring to listen to somebody, especially me, read something. But this is, this is pretty shocking, but you need to hear it. This is an article that appeared this past Friday released by the Religious News Service, and I'll try to read it the best I can. A few years ago, I ran into some cultists. They didn't look like cultists at the time. Instead, they appeared to be do-gooders, dash, warm-hearted local volunteers who were rescuing kittens. Now, for me, who hate cats, that's a problem already, but they have more problems than that. Uh, I don't really hate cats. I just don't like them. Uh, they parked their mobile cat shelter outside the local Kroger and let kids inside to play with the kittens, hoping those kids would pester their parents into taking one home. And then in parenthesis, the author says, my daughter tried, it didn't work, close parenthesis. Still, they were just nice cat people. Not long afterward, I talked to Rachel Gunderson, Rachel had joined the cat rescue group known as Eva's Eden about a decade earlier in Bellingham, Washington. Back then, the group was called the Gates of Praise, a run-of-the-mill Pentecostal church known for its exuberant worship. The church was like a family and made her feel welcome, especially Pastor Cheryl, Cheryl Ruthven, the church 
church's charismatic leader. Quote, I heard Cheryl preach that day and I was hooked, close quote, Rachel said. At first, things went well. Rachel spent every spare hour at the church soaking in Rachel, uh, Pastor Cheryl's teaching. Pastor Cheryl showed Rachel, showered Rachel with love and told her God had great things in mind for her. But before long, things got crazy. Pastor Cheryl started claiming to be a prophet, getting direct divine revelation. Don't worry about what Matthew, Mark, and Luke says. God's talking to me directly, and he says he didn't like your tie. Stuff like that. It gets much more malicious than that. So first, she's a prophet, so she trumps the Bible. Then, a reincarnated Mary Magdalene. Then, the new Messiah. Here's where it gets really shocking, and I hate to even read this to you. She then started making followers kiss her feet, not making this up, and drink her blood mixed with the communion wine. This is why the average smart American unbeliever is scared spitless of people who go to churches like Tanglewood Bible Fellowship because they know the Baptists are crazy, but they know they're not dangerous. They know the Presbyterians are a little bit crazy, but they're not dangerous. But they don't know about us because we don't have a label. See, So don't be offended by that initial reaction. Just be able to tell them what we are, right? We're a group of believers from a wide variety of denominational backgrounds, etc. But it goes on. Then there were the cats, as if making them kiss her feet and drink her blood mixed with communion wine wasn't bad enough. Theologically, it may actually get worse. Then there were the cats. Pastor Cheryl thought stray cats were angels in disguise. And church members, I'm not making this up, should dedicate their lives to rescuing them. I thought we were supposed to be disciples of Jesus. You know, I didn't know. Uh, when the end times came, those cats would transform back into angels and return the favor, saving church members from the end of the world. In other words, apocalypse meow. <laughs> I knew you were going to like that, James. I didn't read that. I wanted you to have that right now, that experience, that that uh, instant recognition. He knows all things pop culture since 1956. I don't know how he knows all that stuff. And Rachel Gunderson bought it all. She says, quote, it's like once you take one sip of the Kool-Aid, you keep drinking, close quote. <laughs> uh, the writer who writes for the religious news service says, I met Gunderson while reporting on Eva's, Gar- Eve- Eva's Eden, that group. Uh, she'd left the group by then and rebuilt her life. Still, she was haunted by her past. How could this have happened, she wondered. I, the author, the reporter, wondered the same thing. How does a normal congregation, I'm not sure that was ever normal. That's just me, okay? But I'm just reading what the person says. How does a normal congregation turn into a cat-worshipping cult of personality? Ben Zeller, Dr. Ben Zeller, professor of religion at Lake Forest College, never heard of it, just north of Chicago. I do know where Chicago is. Says a charismatic leader is the key. Now, the good thing is I have no charisma, so you don't have to worry about that. So... That's the one good thing about having low charisma, right? But according to Dr. Zeller, a charismatic leader is the key. In a group like Eva's Eden, members are often more tied to the leader than the theology, meaning biblical truth, says Zeller, who studied Heaven's Gate cult, which is a different cult, uh, flying saucer cult in Arizona. So they will follow their leader no matter where he or she leads because they're too invested in him or her not to. 
Now, I don't have enough magnetic personality. I, I had a slightly magnetic personality in high school, which is why Debbie probably didn't laugh at me when I asked her if I could take her to the library to study for our final uh, English research paper. That was our first date, going to the library to work on a research paper. So, you know, but, you know, I should have told her something. But uh, I must have had something going there because she actually didn't laugh at me. She went with me. But... Uh, yeah, you know what? It's not about the pastor. It's not about the teacher. It's about the teaching. It's about the truth. It's about Jesus, right? Um, now watch this. Uh, they, they follow the leader, no matter where he or she leads, because they're too invested in him or her not to. Even if that means giving up control of their lives, their finances, their families, or in suicidal groups, Heaven's Gate cult comes to mind, uh, their whole lives, Zeller said. Uh, and this is me now. This kind of thing is a psychological, not a theological thing. It doesn't just happen in Christian or religious groups, quote-unquote Christian. It can happen in Jewish, Muslim, Hindu. But it also happens in political groups, racial groups. All kinds of subcultural groups have these personality cults that at, at best just become quirky and at worst can become really dangerous. So anytime subjectivity and personality is more important than objectivity, and propositional truth. My goal in this, my teaching ministry is let's go through scripture. This is an unusual message. If you want to see what I'm really like, come next week. We go through a portion of scripture. We read it. We interpret it. So you know, so you can go in your Bible and read it and know what it means in context. That's interpretation. And then we emphasize implications, applications. Uh, what does this meaning mean in my conduct and my thought life? And we're going to give you interpretation. What does the text mean? application, what does the text mean to me in Gerald's life, in in Meg's life, in Jeff's life, and for me, more importantly, in Brad's life. That's what we're doing. We're giving you a chance to understand the Bible. So if you move out of town or get mad at the pastor and go to a different church, that's cool. You still know what First Peter means, what Second Peter means. You can actually live a Christian life based on that. That's pretty shocking, right? It was to me, and I found it Friday, and I said, I got to figure out how to do this. And then I got to send an email to scare everybody, make you think I was going to quit or something, and I'm actually a drug dealer or something, which I'm not. Um, so human personality over propositional truth will destroy any church, including this one. A business model approach uh, may attract 500 people, but is not uh, doing the right thing the wrong way, maybe at the best. Pastor, CEO, the boss, no questions, or we'll just project you on the screen, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, you know. It's funny, they never have the worship on a screen. You've got to have a live rock band to draw a crowd. But you can have the, the guy who won't come to your funeral on a screen, and maybe there's a place for that, but I'm not, I, I'm, I'm just don't, I don't get that. And, uh, I think a biblical model is a pastor is more of a TE. What does that mean? Perfect. Way to go, Dale. Home run. Teaching elder, which means one of many elders, not just the elder. A shepherd and a servant leader, right? I mean, Jesus is washing their feet the night before he gets crucified. That's the slave's job. He's not criticizing the guy washing the feet. He's doing it, right? Um, and then cultural pragmatism. This means we got to be the cool church. You know, the pastor has to walk out with his shirt tail untied and maybe his shoes untied and and with a better toupee than I can afford, you know? I mean, I don't get it, man. I just... I just I, 30 years ago, if you told me this is what evangelicalism in America was going to do, I would have bet a million dollars wouldn't happen. And I'm seeing it happen. Uh, leading the water down. And notice I've got cool church, 
which is the problem over slow church. Now, what, what does slow church mean? We don't want to be slow, do we? Well, I'm going to read something else to you. And uh, this is actually uh, from a review that I put in the newsletter, church newsletter, about 18 months ago. But watch this. Uh, the author of the review of this book called Slow Church, Cultivating Community in the Patient Way of Jesus, the review starts like this. I visited a church down south recently that left me starved and speechless. Immediately after the sermon, the pastor began baptisms. A parade of children, one after another, was immersed and toweled off crisply and efficiently. I discovered later that the children were brought in on the church's bus from some distance away. At some point, the baptism stopped. The church, the service ended with prayer abruptly and a final hymn. People got up to go, but the pastor inexplicably returned to the baptismal and kept pumping out more baptisms. These children that the parents don't come and doesn't really matter, but we got to do this because we got to send statistics to some home office that we baptize so many people. They're doing this even though everybody else leaves because it's not important to them. Um, like a, a factory line, the congregants ignored the proceedings and lit out toward the door late for a barbecue maybe. They were too busy to witness baptisms or greet visitors. I left confused and disturbed. If I remembered the exact church, I would overnight a copy of the book, Slow Church, Cultivating Community in the Patient Way of Jesus by Christopher Smith and John Pattison. In fact, I'd send one to every church I know. I'd highlight the chapters on hospitality, balance, and patience. I would do this gently, confessing my own sins of self-absorption and speed, because the book should not be wielded as a weapon, but rather given as a gift, or perhaps more apt It's an invitation to sit down for a leisurely lunch with family and friends after church next Sunday. Or maybe today. The book decries what the authors call franchise faith or McDonaldization of Christianity. They insist that, you know, I talk about no such thing as Bible McNuggets, but that's kind of what's being sold out there. And as the dangers philosophically, theologically, and morally get bigger, we're shrinking the faith to, to a second grade level and everybody seems to love it. They insist that some key aspects of fast food, consumer culture values, and obsession with efficiency, uh, counting numbers, predictability, and control have crept into most American churches today. Maybe it's not most, that's what they say. Hopefully it's less than 50%, but it's out there. Uh, Smith and Patterson contrast the dominant attractional church model with the incarnational model, which they insist is biblical, described by missionologists Michael Frost and Alan Hirsch. Up to 95% of Western churches, according to these missionologists, estimate are basically mission outposts, spiritual lighthouses, luring unbelievers into their doors through imported prepackaged programs and services um, I don't agree with everything. I'm, I'm not uh, describing the nuances. I'm just telling you what the thing says. A slow church, in contrast, attempts to be incarnational, focusing less on attracting outsiders and more on the spiritual quality of its common life, not because we want a holy huddle where we don't interact with believers so that when we go out in the real world most of the week, we can actually live the thing consistently and have some answers for their questions. The goal is organic discipleship, cultivating together the resurrection life of Christ not through a Sunday consumerist, seeker-sensitive experience, but by the daily discipline of deeply and selflessly loving our brothers and sisters, our neighbors, and even our enemies. The main attraction, then, is not the building or even what its members, not the building, the physical building, or even what its members do, but who the people are. Ideally, a group of believers marked by a lifestyle of love for Christ and service to their neighbors. 
They prize stability above mobility, relationships over efficiency, generosity, and Sunday renewal over constant activity. Slow church is more than trendy. Its theological and historical roots run deep. Churches should cultivate long-suffering with one another because God himself cultivated his people patiently over generations. What's the secret to getting along with other believers in a church, including this one? We call it the baptism technique. You hold your nose and bend way over backward a lot of times. If possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with everybody, including your pastor and other people in your church kind of thing, right? Um, what might an incarnational church look like in real life? The authors don't leave us guessing. Smith takes us inside of his own church of 120 in a gritty urban neighborhood outside of Indianapolis. Patterson describes his experience in a smaller evangelical church in rural Oregon. They share their own practices of prioritizing Sunday worship, praying for their church and the world, and being quick to serve the needs of others. Slow Church is a manifesto and a handbook rolled into one. Unlike most manifestos, it's beautifully written, blending historical analysis, personal narrative, and scriptural exegesis into prose that's languid, incisive, and eloquent. And nobody's ever accused me of any of those, so I need to read that book again. It reads like what it is, the long, patient fruit of two men deeply rooted in a particular place among neighbors they know, love, and serve. Here's my problem. I worry that church leaders seeing the words slow church will steer clear believing that their mega, mobile, urban, or rural congregants are too busy to profit from this book. Yes, we'll always be fighting the clock, but that needed consign us to a drive-through church or fast-food faith. No matter the size of our church body or the kind of neighborhood we live in, we would all do well to slow down and examine ourselves in the clearest light available, the light of Scripture and the light of Christ himself, rather than the fluorescent light of business models and burger joints. Boom, slam dunk, over and out, next slide. Let's go from uh, three ways we could destroy this thing to three keys to our ministry. This goes back at least to Augustine in the 4th century. In the essentials, unity, doctrinal, moral. In the non-essentials, liberty. You decide if you're going to eat meat offered to idols, Paul says, and hammer out your conviction or what movies you're going to go see. And in all things charity, they say it that way because it rhymes, unity, liberty, charity, but charity means agape love. Now this is the way God sees his church in Duncan, all over the world, and there's no human pastor who designed it that way. I would not have designed it this way. I would have designed one big circle, TBF, me the pastor, obeying the world, all 2.1 billion Christians having to get on buses and planes to come here every Sunday. That's the way I design it because I'm sinful and depraved. God doesn't think like that. He likes his church to look like that, okay? Now, at the center of that's the cross and the resurrection. I make it small just so this spirograph thing will show up. And David actually did this for me. will show up on the uh, one slide. And I know you can't see it. There's another one I shouldn't have used. But there's the gospel in the center. There's Assembly of God folks that are born again in Christ. There are Methodists who are born again through faith in Christ. There are Southern Baptists. There are Northern Baptists. There are Nazarene, Church of Nazarene. There's Presbyterians who've trusted in Christ. There's Lutherans. And there we are. And that's a partial look at it. But God likes his church to look like that. That's the way it is. And it really makes a lot of sense when you think about it. Now, what's at the very core of that? Talking about in the essentials unity. The core of that is the gospel. 
the death and the resurrection of Christ. And not just as a virtuous martyr, but to pay your sin debt to heaven, everything you need to go to heaven, Jesus did on the cross, and you're daring to trust somebody you've never seen to have done that for you, and you're putting all your chips on him, active, receptive trust. That's the gospel, okay? Um, In the essentials, let's say a bit more about the essentials really briefly, but this is worth the price of admission today. How much did you pay to get in? Oh, yeah. It's worth more than that. I'm convinced that when you look at that diagram of all those different churches, Natalie, God wants his church to get four big truth claims. And it gets more specific than that as you do Bible study. I get that. And I could write you a 100-page doctrinal statement that would be essentially perfect. But we don't have that here. You know, the seven great truth claims that have always been at the essential the essential uh, truths of Christianity are who God is. He's true, triune, transcendent, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, just, righteous, sovereign, love, immutable, veracity, eternal life. He's triune. One God and three persons. Nobody make that up. That's who God is. Who Christ is specifically. He's the God-man Savior. Second person of the Trinity who took on humanity without ceasing to be deity. One person, two natures. That's who he is. Unique. The way. The truth. The life. Who we are. That's human beings. Who are human beings? Doug's a counselor. He knows human beings are flawed. And that gives you job security. Right, Doug? If it wouldn't, you know. But uh, we're, we're all GIs, Dustin. We're guilty with a complete inability to save ourselves. That's what we are. And some people don't like the word sin. Other religious people think they're going to go to heaven because they're so religious. And both those people are wrong, right? Uh, what Christ has done. Notice that's at the top of the chart. That's a chiasm, by the way. But I said I wouldn't talk about chiasms anymore. Uh, you know, there's our logo, TBF, with a cross and an arrow, death and resurrection. What has Christ done? He's the exclusive issue and the exclusive issue of eternal life. He saves Baptists who believe and Iraqis who believe and black people who believe and poor people who believe and anyone who trusts in him because Christ died for our sins and rose again. What do we do to access that? For by grace, unmerited favor, are you saved through faith, active, receptive trust in the work and person of Christ. It's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works. Nothing to brag about for the one who... Who does, uh, we'll stop there. I'm going into too much detail. Uh, what Christ will do. You know, recently, I guess last week, we talked about, um, end times. We, we walked through the book of Revelation, and I said, my chart is more specific than John Calvin's or Charles Wesley's, a Calvinist and an Arminian, and we have different diagrams of the end times, but the one thing we affirm consistently that's been an essential truth claim of Christianity is what? When you talk about Bible prophecy, what's the one thing Christians have always understood, even though we disagree on some of the other details? A literal second advent. Jesus, who came as the Lamb, Eric, is going to come back visibly, supernaturally, undeniably, to end history on God's terms. And what happens before and what after that, Christians debate about based on the complexity of Bible prophecy. But that's what he will do. And then what the Bible is. Inspired, indispensable, uh, inerrant, exactly what we need for truth and practice. So that's the essentials of the Christian faith boiled down. And you know, if you go to a denominational church, they're going to have that plus a lot more of their distinctives. They have a perfect right for that, and that's why they kind of clump together. In a church like this, where we have people from Roman Catholic backgrounds, Presbyterian backgrounds, Church of Nazarene backgrounds, uh, Methodist backgrounds, Baptist backgrounds, agnostic backgrounds, atheistic backgrounds, uh, Republicans, Democrats, we need to know exactly what we're saying really holds us together. 
And that's what it is right there as far as truth claims. What about morals? What's the basic call uh, to Christians? I think Jesus was asked, what's, what's the practical import of the, of the Scripture? And what does he say? Love God, love the Lord your God with all your soul, mind, and strength, and what? Try to put up with everybody else. Love one another, other people as yourself, right? Uh, to be more specific, it's the Ten Commandments through a New Testament lens minus the Sabbath. You know, sure, there's certain truth claims that are transcendent, that are gnomic, you know, lying, cheating, stealing, uh, these things. You can't redefine these great institutions, marriage. Who, who's got the right to redefine marriage, you know? It's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, right? So these basic concepts are what Christianity has always been, and if people are going to water that down, they're selling a different philosophy of life, and it may even actually work pragmatically when you're 20 and 30, it's not Christianity. Okay, let's talk about, and also, by the way, loving God and others as we abide in Christ. This isn't just psychological behavior modification. This is believers recognizing and responding from the heart to the Jesus Christ who saved them. So you're focusing on a ruler, not on rules. So, of course, you obey the rules. Uh, when we first got married, Debbie and I decided she would make all the small decisions. I would make all the big decisions. Forty-four and a half year later, We've had no big decisions come up yet, but if they ever do. <laughs> so I just kind of do what she says, and it all works out. You know, it's, it's kind of like that. But she didn't give me a list of rules. I just kind of try to do what she says. You know? um, so it's all about abiding in Christ, not just following rules. It's bigger than that. Okay, whoops. I was going to ask you, uh, or tell you this. I'm almost done. going a little bit long. Hold on. Is it getting warm in here? Okay. That's conviction. Uh, <laughs> Howard Hendricks at Dallas Seminary told us there's three kinds of people in your local church. People who make things happen, people who watch things happen, and people who wonder what's happening. The way I put it is, you got people who are curious on the fringes, people who are casual in kind of pick and choose the stuff they get excited about, and people who are actually committed. Uh, this isn't for salvation, this is for discipleship to their local church, and they make it a major priority. Uh, the wards, you know, their, their, uh, love language is get involved and make it better. And, uh, we've got a lot of people like that historically, but they, they come to mind just cause I, you're right in the middle. And so, you know, and plus the glare off your forehead and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, and I've spent 30 minutes before on this and I won't do that. We're winding down, but I would say, um, which one, which category were you last year? Were you curious, casual, or committed when it comes to TBF? As opposed to Simmons Center basketball, Little League baseball, um, Chisholm Trail soccer, Boy Scouts. I did all those things. Uh, I, I coached all those sports. I was in the Boy Scouts. I was first class scout in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, it was a very traumatic thing for me. This was back when it was, scouting was tough. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a proponent. I'm just straight up. I think I think your local church is more important than those things. I'm not saying don't be involved in those things. I think you should be. But you got to decide as a family, how many of those things like that can we be involved in and not have it affect our commitment to our local church? Because local churches trump like all that stuff, in my opinion. That's my secret agenda, so you'll know. So that's one question. Which were you in 2007? I've got a much more important question, James. What do you think it is? Which one are you going to be this year, Right? Now you might think, well, local church, church is important to Brad because, you know, he's kind of a professional Christian and stuff. 
But let me show you three. And by the way, I, t- I love that picture. I took that picture from the Church of the Teardrop on the Garden, uh, on the uh, Mount of Olives, looking back at the Temple Mount. And you've got that wrought iron window with a cross on top of the Dome of the Rock. <laughs> I love that, you know. But um, let me show you three persons who are always committed. I'm not talking about uh, Eric, Ray, and Clay. Here are three persons that are always committed to the local church. The Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. You know, read Ephesians, read Colossians, and tell me that Chisholm Trail soccer practices, soccer practices are more important than prayer meeting. You cannot prove that from the Bible. I'm sorry. I don't believe that. Uh, one last thing. Let's talk about outreach. We've got three, and you know what? I think we're going to give you a special t-shirt if you go on all three of these, although it may be ontologically impossible to go on all three of them. But we've got the Haiti trip, uh, Actually, early early June, right? Um, those descriptions are generic. The Pueblo trip, uh, end of June, and then the youth group trip, early part of July. And uh, yeah, and do I believe in outreach trips like that? Yeah, I'm all for them. I think they're great, and I think it's pretty cool that we actually get out of the building and get out of our comfort zone and do stuff like that. But if you look at the back of the bulletin, just rhetorically, to actually look at the PowerPoint slide, please. Uh, I put every week the most important outreach we've got is inviting others we know to visit the church, people that you actually have uh, some kind of credibility with. And I've often said this, but James and I invite a lot of people to church, but just a real person as opposed to me and James, we're not real people. We're professional Christians, you know. This is the way some people see us in the world. Your personal invitation can have... 10 times more impact, 100 times more impact than mine. And let me show you a short video. David got that queued up that uh, will underscore that. Nice. Yeah, I, I think the American church model has been the pastor goes out and begs people to come to church. We've always said that's not really the main point of church. The main point of church is to get believers together so we're being built up so we can actually live a credible Christian life in the world. But your invitation quite often is just an average person is a lot more powerful from a pragmatic point of view than mine or James, uh, which doesn't mean we're going to stop asking people to come to church. Uh, we usually come short of begging, but uh, uh, don't be unaware of opportunities there. Uh, let me close this way. It's all about discipleship, which is where we started. Purpose, objectives, and goals. Our purpose is to glorify God by being and making or contributing to the discipleships of others. Uh, and I would just say... I was taught a very watered-down conception of uh, discipleship when I was growing up. Every Sunday, our pastor would say, if you give God one-seventh of your time, which I think meant come to church on Sunday and Sunday morning and night, and one-tenth of your money, God will bless you. And as a little kid, I thought, that's a whale of a good deal. I got no income, so I got nothing to give, and I, I love coming to church, you know. So that, that's that's the Christian life. I can do that, you know. Um, I read Jesus says, you know, if you want to come after me, not come to me for salvation. And he's looking at the apostles who are believers, except for Judas. You got you got to deny yourself-ishness, take up your cross daily, publicly submit to my authority, and keep on following me. So that's a normative Christian life. A lot of times, to the extent we acknowledge church, it's just one more slice in our pie, and we live the Christian life in church. That's not a biblical model. That's not my model. That's not what I'm trying to do here. I'm trying to encourage us to get Christ as believers in the center of our lives so that at a practical level, not just that you say, I believe he's the Lord, he's actually the Lord of your life. 
including on prom night, including on Sunday morning also. So uh, let me just end this way. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope with perseverance. If I can paraphrase something else, uh, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, who knows what 2018 is going to look like. You could have great things happen to you. You could have horrible things happen to you. You're probably going to have a little bit of both. But the passage says, hold on with perseverance no matter what happens. And as part of that, stimulate one another, fellow believers, to love and good deeds, not forsaking or assembling ourselves together. Where are they going? They're going to their local church. As is the habit of some. Carol, what does that mean? As is the habit of some. Even when the guy wrote Hebrews, not all of them were necessarily showing up for church consistently. Some of them made it a habit, like Homer and Pam. And not every habit's bad. There are good habits and bad habits, right? Uh, Homer wakes up at like four in the morning and walks 18 miles. And I don't, I don't do that, but, uh, he, that's a good habit for him. Uh, I think I exaggerate a little bit. Habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as we see the day approaching, as we in, see the end times approaching and we're closer than they were. Uh, final convicting question. If everybody else at TBF were exactly like me, and I really mean exactly like you, in your attitude, attendance, service, support, outreach, how strong would we be? And we're Team Tanglewood here. And we're only as strong as our weakest link. So for us to be our best this year, we've got to be moving beyond the convenience level or the curious or casual level. And I hope uh, uh, you'll do that. I'm going to do my best. Okay? Let's have a word of prayer. Well, I thank you for this amazing thing that TBF is. I mean, for going on 42 years now. Never passing an offering plate. We don't have a denominational label that freaks people out or confuses them. And yet you've provided for us and you've used us. And hey, we're not the only uh, good church in town. And, and a lot of churches are bigger and better in many ways. And that's cool. And we're thankful to be part of the capital C church, much bigger than any local church. But you've done significant things and you've definitely supported and provided for us in, in, in wonderful ways. Uh, through the generosity of your people, through the giving of your people. And uh, I want to pray that as we approach 2018, with all the uncertainties, with all the opportunities, with all the challenges, with all the pain, with all the pleasure we're all going to experience, I pray that uh, we would either renew our commitment uh, to make our local church near and dear to our heart and make it more important than a lot of other good things we may or may not have time to do. And for others who just would admittedly would say, look at, maybe not look at me, but look at you and say, yeah, I've been kind of more, uh, curious or casual and committed to my local church. I want to move it up a step. I pray that you would ignite that in them to your glory. Uh, thank you for each one who's here and I pray you would bear a lot of fruit from uh, what you've taught us today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.